would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4. You'll find our passage today printed for you in the bulletin as well. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Quite a shorter chapter from last week. Last week we had a chapter and a half that we covered. Uh, Today we just have 12 verses to get through. Uh, But perhaps more difficult in some ways as we read of some very dark things in this one chapter. I invite you to listen as I read to you from 2 Samuel chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was, was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Benah and the name of the other Rechab. Sons of Ramon, a, a man of Benjamin from Beroth. For Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Berothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled on his feet. He was five years old when, he, when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab and Benah, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every part of it, even difficult parts to read like this one. As we read about the depravity, the deep depravity of so many people, I pray, Father, that as we contemplate these things, that you would help us to have a greater understanding of your grace and mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Open our eyes. Open our minds, open our hearts, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, take your word, even this portion of your word, and press it deeply into us, that we might trust you in greater ways, that we might be filled with hope and courage and strength 
to patiently wait on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every family has baggage. Every family has stories and people and situations which are controversial, which are embarrassing, sometimes even scandalous. And during this past week of all weeks, I heard one of those stories from my own family background, a story related to the presidential election of 1856. 1856, James Buchanan defeated John Fremont and Millard Fillmore to become the 15th president of the United States. And the campaign, and especially the vote, was contentious and intense. The hot issues during that time period were slavery and the immigration policies, and there was social unrest in the territory of Kansas due to race issues. The atmosphere in the country was charged. It was volatile. The debate was intense. The voting was intense and close in many states, including the state of Indiana, which is where my family came from. My three times great uncle was a man named Cornelius Harris. And at the time, he was 22 years old. And he got himself involved in a scheme to try to illegally sway the vote in the state of Indiana. The election race in Indiana had been particularly heated and close. And it was close enough that certain supporters of Fremont believed that they could shift the election in their favor if they could pack the vote in certain counties in the state of Indiana. Wayne County, which is where both my wife and I grew up and where Cornelius lived, was solidly behind Fremont. But nearby Rush County was trending toward Buchanan. And so a number of Fremont supporters came up with a plan. They would gather a number of young voters from Wayne County and pay them to go down to Rush County and actually cast their vote there. Thereby illegally adding votes where they didn't belong. Now, in the end, it didn't really matter. Buchanan won the state of Indiana. He won both the popular vote of the country as well as the electoral vote. And he became the 15th president of the United States. And the people in this scheme, including my relative, got caught. Those behind the scheme... And those involved in the scheme were called before the Indiana House of Representatives to testify in hearings. Cornelius testified, and these were his words. A Mr. Applegate gave me my ticket. It was a Fremont ticket. My vote was not challenged. I remained in Rush County only an hour or two. Then we hired a wagon and I returned to Wayne County with the same crowd with whom I came. A little over a year later, after these events took place, my great-great-great-uncle Cornelius was admitted to the Indiana Hospital for the Insane. And on his admission papers, one of the reasons for him being admitted was the crushing anxiety and shame he felt for how he voted in the 1856 election. Every family has baggage. 
We all have stories and people and situations that are controversial, embarrassing, and scandalous. And as we've been reading these chapters in 2 Samuel, chapters 1 through 4, we have seen over and over again controversial, embarrassing, and even scandalous baggage of families in Old Testament Israel. We read about King Saul being killed in battle and we read about people trying to take advantage of that. We read about his cousin and commander of the armies, Abner, setting up one of Saul's sons in an illegal way as king over the northern tribes of Israel. We read about how Abner defected and gave his allegiance to David, partially uh, for his own selfish gain. And then how he was murdered by one of David's jealous nephews, Joab. In chapter 3, we read about a number of David's sons uh, foreshadowing these, these sons that we'll read about in coming chapters who will create chaos in the kingdom and commit horrendous and scandalous acts. And we are only touching the tip of the iceberg so far. Saul's family had baggage. David's family had baggage. And in a sense, this is all of our family as the family of God. As we, as we read about all of this baggage, as we dive into the depravity that we see in these chapters, we also learn about the fact that God is faithful to His promises to His people. And we also see lots of reasons why it is important for God's people to trust Him and to wait upon Him to fulfill His promises, even through incredible difficulties, and even if it takes a long period of time. So today, I want us to look at one of these additional stories that we have in chapter 4. It is a story of treachery. But even as we look at this story of treachery, we will see how David responded with justice and then we'll finish by trying to figure out what in the world can we take away from this chapter. So let's look at the story first. It is a story of treachery. You'll remember that the end of chapter 3 came with Abner being killed. Remember, Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, had been the power behind the puppet king Ishbosheth. He had propped up Ishbosheth to be king. But now Abner had been killed at the end of chapter 3. And so as we begin chapter 4, what we would expect is to hear that Ishbosheth is worried and nervous and fearful because the power that was propping him up was now gone. And that's exactly what we see in verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Uh, that phrase, his courage failed, is very interesting. It literally means that his hands dropped. It has the sense of hay catching on fire and wilting. That's the picture of this man, of Ishbosheth. His courage failed. His hands dropped. He sunk down. He wilted as if hay was on fire. And we read that as the people that he led watched him, they too became dismayed. And then, 
these two brothers decided to take advantage of the situation. Now, who are they? Well, we read about them in verses 1 through 3. We get a little bit of their background. We're told that their names were Banah and Rechab, and that they were captains of the raiding bands of King Ishbosheth. They were soldiers, and as we see in this passage, they were assassins. In the end of verse 2 and into verse 3, we're actually given some family background information. I'm not going to go into unpack all of that right now, but just suffice it to say that we're given that information to let us know that their family had some baggage. These brothers were a part of a family that very likely had been involved in some of Saul's wicked plundering of the Gibeonites that we read about in the scriptures. And now these two brothers, these two assassins, these two that come from this, this family uh, of, of great baggage, saw an opportunity for some of their own selfish gain and they decided to take matters into their own hands. So what did they do? Well, we read that in verse 5. The sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab and Benah, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. These two brothers saw an opportunity. They went to the house of King Ishbosheth and waited until they knew that the king would be taking his afternoon nap in the heat of the day. And they gained entrance into his house under false pretenses. And then we're told that they murdered King Ishbosheth while he was asleep in his own bed, and then beheaded him and escaped out of the house. Now, some are sometimes confused about verses 5 and 6 and then verse 7. It seems like it's repetition. And that's precisely what it is. In Hebrew, that is one way that the, the authors would uh, communicate emphasis, that they would give us more detail. So we read about the general thing that they did in verses 5 and 6, and then we get more detail in verse 7. These two guys came into the house and they killed King Ishbosheth. Well, how did they do it? They waited until he was asleep in his own bed, and then they stabbed him while he slept in his bed. And then, after they killed him, they escaped out of the house and made their way south to Hebron, where David was. Now, up until this point, we don't know why they did it. We're not given a lot of information about why they did it, but we get that at the end of verse 7 and verse 8. They made their way down to Hebron, where David was. And they said to the king, here is the head of, of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now we understand what they were thinking, what their rationale was. They saw an opportunity to put David into their debt. What they are essentially saying is, David, look at this great news. The Lord has used us to bring you safety. Here is King Ishbosheth killed. Now your pathway to the crown is cleared. Aren't we great for saving you? That's the sense of what we read in verses 8. Almost, almost a sense of David, you should be grateful 
You should be grateful that we have done this great deed for you. It's certain that they expected David to reward them, probably with positions of power in the new kingdom. But they were gravely, they were fatally mistaken. How did David respond? We read that in verses 9 through 12. David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Barathite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? After David listened to these two brothers tell their story, present themselves in a sense as David's saviors, David had a story to tell them as well. He took them back to the events that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 1 a few weeks ago. There when Saul fell on the battlefield in the north, an Amalekite man saw an opportunity. And so he went to David to tell him that Saul had died on the battlefield, that Saul had asked the Amalekite man to, to go ahead and kill him so that he wouldn't be uh, uh, conquered and wouldn't be captured and taken and, ter and terrorized and tortured. Except that's not actually what happened. The Amalekite man lied. And David said, when that man came and told me that he had killed King Saul, he thought that he was bringing me good news. But in fact... He said that he killed the Lord's anointed. And so I had that man executed in justice. How much more so? You two wicked brothers who killed an innocent man, a man who did nothing to deserve to be killed, you killed him in cold blood, in his house, in his own bed while he slept. Just as I rewarded the Amalekite for executing the Lord's anointed, how much more so do you deserve to be killed? David saw the act of these men as nothing but treacherous. They were self-seeking, disloyal, seeking own selfish personal gain, and they even used God to justify their actions. And so David began his words with them by saying this, as the Lord lives. That is the language of a king convening a royal court of justice. These men had committed capital murder by killing King Ishbosheth. And David didn't even to need to come up with his own punishment. He didn't need to be creative in how to punish them because he knew the word of God. And he knew the word of God says in Genesis 9 verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made him in his own image. David simply put God's word into effect. These two men had confessed to capital murder and they had brought evidence condemning themselves. And so David declared that justice would be served. And he had the two men executed, had their hands and their feet displayed to the public to make abundantly clear that David was not condoning their act in killing King Ishbosheth. 
And then, as a champion that he was, a champion of even those who are weak and killed unrighteously, he had Ishbosheth's head buried in the royal burial place in Hebron with the body of Abner. Now, we might read this chapter and we might think, wow. This is a really horrible chapter of Scripture. It begins with bloodshed, it ends with bloodshed, and there's treachery in the middle. What in the world can we get out of this passage for us today? Well, I think there are three things that I want you to leave today thinking about, meditating on. The first is that we must never use theology for our own personal gain. That's exactly what these two brothers did in verse 8. That's what they're saying. That they are using God, they're using theology to justify their actions to end in their own selfish gain. They would have had a trip from Ishbosheth's house in the north to where David was in Hebron in the south that probably would have taken about two days. And you can imagine them walking along the way, talking with each other, trying to figure out what are we going to say? How are we going to spin it? How are we going to get David to understand this great thing that we've done for him? And so what they came up with was this. God used us to get rid of Ishbosheth and to clear your way to the throne. We saved you, David. Shouldn't you be grateful? They used theology for the purpose of their own selfish and personal gain rather than worshiping the Lord And following the Lord's commands. One commentator put it this way. These brothers went to David with blood on their hands, but God on their lips. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our theology must always move us to worship the Lord and to obey the Lord. Not to make us proud and arrogant and selfish. Let me talk in house here for just a minute. Perhaps this is a particular temptation when Christians who are not from a Presbyterian and Reformed background start learning about God's doctrines of grace. And there are plenty of examples. Perhaps you've even seen some of these examples in your own life of when people become arrogant and proud and harsh when they have these wonderful doctrines of grace to talk to others about. Our theology must never Make us proud and arrogant and selfish. It must move us to be humble worshipers of the one true God. We must never use our theology to justify our sin and to put others in our debt. Our theology must never cause us to be puffed up with pride and to look down on brothers and sisters in Christ. Rather, we should be made as humble people, grateful people, To worship the Lord God Almighty and to give Him our obedience. We must never use our theology for our own personal gain. A second thing, a second takeaway for us today, something we see here is the importance of the overlooked. If you've been with us as we've been looking through 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel uh, verses, uh, chapters 1 through 4, we have seen a, a steady stream of strong alpha male characters in these, verse, in these chapters. We've seen Saul and Abner. We've seen David and Joab. 
And we've also seen a lot of bloodshed already, murder, treachery. We've seen violence leading to more violence. But we've also seen here in this chapter in particular, two men that are mentioned that don't fit that mold. We read in verse 1 about King Ishbosheth, and we read in verse 4, which somewhat seems out of place, doesn't it, about this man named Mephibosheth. Ishbosheth was Saul's son. We know about him. We've been hearing about him already. But here we come to a new character in the story, Mephibosheth, who was Saul's grandson through Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, why is Mephibosheth here in verse 4? It it does seem like it's out of place. We read verses 1 through 3, and it's almost like we're taking a break to hear about Mephibosheth, and then we're back to verses 5 and following to hear the rest of the story. So why is he here in verse 4? Well, he's there for at least a couple of reasons. One, the author is foreshadowing Mephibosheth. We're going to read more about him in chapter 9. And just like he did in chapter 3 where he gave us the names of David's sons who are going to play significant roles in following chapters, here we're we're given a foretaste, we're given a foreshadowing of Mephibosheth. But the author is also helping us to have a sense, as we read earlier in chapter 3, that Saul's house is becoming weaker and weaker. These two men mentioned, Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth, are the last two heirs of Saul, his son and his grandson. And we're being told that these two are now being taken out of the line, one by being killed and the other by becoming disabled. Ishbosheth was and Mephibosheth would both have been seen as being very weak and unimportant in this ancient Near Eastern culture. These would have been men that would have been very easily taken advantage of. We've already seen that with Ishbosheth. He became the puppet king of Abner. And we read that he was afraid of Abner. And when Abner was removed from power, when he was killed, we read that Ishbosheth basically wilted and his courage failed. And Mephibosheth, we read in verse 4, had a horrendous fall as a young boy when he was five years of age. And as a result, he was disabled for the rest of his life. In that culture, both of these men would have been seen as weak as dependent, as unimportant, easily to be taken advantage of. But God knows their names and has their names recorded in Scripture and had them play a role in redemptive history. Maybe they were small and insignificant and had insignificant roles in the eyes of the world, but they were important in God's eyes. And just as David had been their champion, the champion of both of these men, so too King Jesus is the champion of His people, especially when we feel weak, inconsequential, unimportant and small in the eyes of the world. You may look around and you may feel unimportant. You may feel like the world doesn't care about you, that nobody knows your name, that you are inconsequential, but not in the eyes of your Father in heaven. The Lord knows your name. He created you with dignity. He created you with purpose and meaning. 
And if you have that, it doesn't matter if the world doesn't know your name. Because the creator of the universe and your father in heaven know you, have named you, and remember you. One last takeaway for today. And that is, as we read this, we see, as we have in other parts of 2 Samuel already, how important it is that God's people trust the Lord and patiently wait on the Lord to fulfill His will. We've seen that over and over again already in these first four chapters. We talked before about how sometime as a young man, David was anointed by the Lord to be king over all of Israel. We read a, you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But that didn't come to pass. It didn't happen for years and years. And not until lots and lots of difficulties and challenges came David's way. And even after David had been crowned king over Judah, he still had another seven and a half years before Ishbosheth was killed in chapter 4. And he would be crowned king that you'll hear about next week in chapter 5. But through it all, we see David trusting the Lord, patiently waiting on the Lord to bring about the plan that he had revealed to him so many years before. David had plenty of opportunities to take matters into his own hands, to be anxious and to not want to wait any longer and to take the kingdom for his own. On a number of occasions, he had the opportunity of killing Saul before Saul died. We've read in these first four chapters of 2 Samuel, David had all kinds of opportunity to participate in treachery, to participate in unrighteous things in order to propel himself to be king over all of Israel. And yet he refused. He trusted in the Lord's promises. He trusted in the Lord being at work. He waited on the Lord to put him on the throne. And while he waited over and over and over again, including in this chapter, he worked justice in the kingdom. In these ways, as we see David doing this, David is pointing forward to us to the greater King David, King Jesus, who perfectly trusted his father, who trusted and waited faithfully on the will of his father to be accomplished. And through his life of perfect love and obedience, through his sacrificial death on the cross, through his resurrection from the grave, he perfectly satisfied the ultimate justice of God. He did that by paying for the sin of his people with his own life. Achieving a record of righteousness that has been credited to our accounts because of Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as Jesus has done this, that means a couple of things for us. First, we must trust in Jesus' work of redemption on our behalf and patiently wait for its final consummation. That means, first of all, that when we are tempted to not believe that God could actually forgive the sins of somebody like me, we trust in the redemption of our Savior. Some of us are acutely aware of the darkness of our hearts. We have consciences that are easily pricked by the Holy Spirit To bring us to a sense of conviction about our sin. 
And when we feel it, it feels heavy. And there is a burden. And it might even cause us to despair of hope. And what this is telling us is that in those moments, we must believe what the Word of God says more than what our heart may be telling us that we think is true. God made Him who was not sin to be sin so that we, as God's people, can be called the righteousness of God. And in those moments when you are tempted to despair and to not believe that God could forgive somebody like you, you go to the Word and you say, the Word of God says that even a sinner like me has his sins forgiven for all eternity. And I will believe what the Word of God says. I will trust in the Word of the Lord. And I will wait on Him to bring full consummation It means not only that when we're tempted to think that God could save a sinner like us, that we must trust what the Lord says, but it also means that we must let gratitude for God's redemption for us motivate us to fight against our sin and to resist temptation. Did you notice what motivated David? When these two brothers came to David, they they presented David with an opportunity to sin, to go along with this this cold-blooded murder. David was tempted. He was tempted to go along with what they were saying. He was tempted to give in and to give in to sin. And what motivated David not to give in? What did he say in verse 9? David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Barathite, as the Lord lives, the Lord who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. These two brothers came to him with this idea that they should be given some kind of thanksgiving offering or position because the Lord had used them and they had done this great work for David. And David responds with another way of looking at it, the right way. My God has redeemed me. You have not redeemed me, Banah and Rechab. The Lord God Almighty has redeemed me. That word redeemed there is the word that means to be paid for with a price. David understood that the Lord God Almighty had made him one of his children. He had been adopted into the family of God. He had had his sins paid for. And in gratitude for the Lord's redemption, David said, I will not give in to sin. I will pursue righteousness and justice. The illustration is familiar to you, I'm sure. A man named Polycarp in the year uh, 155 A.D. He was serving as a Christian bishop of the Greek city Smyrna. He was 86 years of of age. 86 years of age. And the authorities of that town came to Polycarp. And they brought him into custody and they required him to give, their, give his allegiance to Caesar. He was called on to call Caesar Lord and to burn incense in the honor of the emperor. And Polycarp refused. The authorities told him that if he didn't give his allegiance to Caesar, the authorities would call for wild beasts to be brought in and he, they would feed Polycarp to the wild beasts and let him be torn apart as people watched. And Polycarp said, send for the beasts. 
The authority responded and said, well, if the the wild beasts don't motivate you, if they're not of concern to you, then I'll have you burned alive at the stake. All he had to do was to curse Jesus and give allegiance with his lips to Caesar. Polycarp gave this response. These 80 and 6 years have I served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The authorities bound Polycarp to a stake, set him on fire, and eventually stabbed him while he was while he was burning. Polycarp had an overwhelming sense of gratitude to God for his redemption, for the Lord's work in his life. And he was so moved to thanksgiving and gratitude that he would follow the Lord, even if it meant his own life and great pain. John Calvin put it this way, whenever we are tempted to evil, under the excuse of saving our life, under the excuse of ridding ourselves of some worry or anguish, or of having some remedy for our own troubles, let us think, has not God taken, taken care of us up until now? And since, therefore, we have known Him to be merciful to us, and we have been saved by His hands so many times, should we now abandon Him? Here is the motivation for God's people. Here is the power for God's people to lean against their sin and their temptation. To remember all of the ways that the Lord has been at work in your life. Especially in redeeming you through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be driven as a result to thankfulness and gratitude. To believe and to trust and to lean against your sin and to obey the Lord. So as we think about what this is teaching us today, one of these things is that we are to be trusting the Lord and patiently waiting on the Lord. And one of the ways that we do that is by trusting in Jesus' work of redemption for us and waiting patiently for His consummation. And then lastly, a second thing. It means that we must trust in the God of justice and wait for His final judgment. We know that the God that we serve is a God of justice. And so we can trust and we can wait patiently for His final act of judgment and justice. We look around and we see injustices everywhere. Injustice toward the people of God, toward the church. Maybe even injustices that we personally have felt and have experienced. And it could cause us at times to wonder, is it worth it? Maybe I should just give up Christianity and leave the faith or even take matters into my own hands in some kind of sinful way. But in those moments, we remember that our ultimate hope is not injustice being done here and now necessarily. We should work in holy ways for justice and what is right and righteous now. But if it doesn't come to pass, we hold on to the hope of the ultimate day of justice that is coming when our God will make all things right. And we put our hope and trust and wait on that rather than taking things into our own hands in some kind of sinful way. We trust God that He will be at work. Let's pray together.
Father, we do come to this portion of your word and we confess it's hard to read. It, it, it's a hard passage. It shows us the depravity of human beings. But I pray, Father, through the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts, and that we would see your goodness and faithfulness, and that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross redeeming us from our sins, and the promise that a day is coming when all true justice will be done, and that that would fill us with the ability to trust you and to wait patiently on you. Help us, Father, to believe the gospel. Help us to have the strength that we need to lean against our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.